Welcome to another episode of Fish Tales. I'm your host, Lee Trout, and today I have with me Josh Goldberg. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, please introduce yourself. Tell everybody about yourself. With pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. I'm Josh Goldberg. I'm a full-time open-source developer. I work largely in the TypeScript ecosystem. I work on static analysis tooling, most notably TypeScript ESLint, which is the tooling that lets you run ESLint and Prettier on TypeScript code. We're right now working on a big V6.0.0, hopefully in the next couple of months. Um, I also wrote a book, Learning TypeScript, which I highly recommend to anyone who wants to learn TypeScript. All you need is JavaScript and, and you're good to go with it. Uh, Lee, we met, what was that? At All Things Open, right? Earlier in 2022 in the fall. Yeah, uh, Community Leadership Summit, the uh, the That's optional right. day. Yeah. I had no idea it was optional or a thing. I just do there as, I, I go into conferences pretty pretty naive. I just, I show up and I see what's there, which is sometimes a good strategy, sometimes unfortunately uh, not the right one. But for this one, I feel like it went pretty well. It was a good time. I tell everybody it's it's the hallway track is the value in all of these conferences and oh, and not yeah. to put down the conference or the organizers, but the hallway track is where it's at. So I'm all for just showing up. Oh yeah. I mean, agree. I think that in addition to talks being on their own, very useful and good often, especially when the speaker and or topic are quite good, the hallway track is informed by the talks. And I thought a lot of the talks, a lot of the conference sessions at ATO were really good and helped inform a lot of really positive and interesting hallway conversations. I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed that community leadership summit day a lot. I met you. I met a few other folks, uh, a couple other folks that are that are on the podcast, too. And it was interesting to see the the breadth and mix of people because I kind of felt like I had imposter syndrome signing up for that. I was like community leadership summit. Like I'm not really a community leader, yeah. but I'm interested in that side of things. So I went and I was totally like not out of place. Like it was a great thing. Was there some motivation that made you go to that? I know you said you just kind of like see what these things are, but you know, did you have something else there? No, I was, I was similar. Um, I only realized halfway through the, the leadership summit. Wow, no, this is actually really applicable to me because I I don't consider myself a community builder. I don't know things like common room and discord at, at any level of detail, but I realized, wait, I work on an open source project. We, for the longest time, long before I joined, did not have any active community building efforts. There just was not the time budget for it. But now that I've joined, now that we have more sustainable funding, this is TypeScript PS Lint, we really want to start building a community, first with the maintainers and then with the contributors and then with the community community. And all these things like reaching out to people after they've done their first contribution and setting up good docs and maybe even recording videos on top of the docs. Like these are all great tips. I was, I was very pleased. I came away with a whole list of notes that are now sitting in our private Discord waiting to be implemented. It was great. I think it was like not even a week later and I carried out, you know, one of the things that stood out for me from that first day was the emphasis on non-technical contributions in open source, which yes. is, it's something I felt as somebody like consuming open source projects and code. And I've been very spoiled. I learned how spoiled I was coming up. I'm a huge fan of Django, big Django user, big fan of Django. And the documentation for Django is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. And you kind of take that for granted or I take it for granted that you run across other projects that have like no documentation. Uh, and you'll find documents or um, projects wildly popular, thousands of GitHub stars and they have no documentation. You're lucky if they have yeah. a read me. Yeah. And, and I liked that emphasis throughout the day, you know, around like their, you know, 
fostering as you build a community around something open source, you know, fostering these contributions that are not just technical. And I think that's that's a great thing. And I, I think a lot of projects are successful at doing that. Unfortunately, I feel like you have to know a lot of these projects to even contribute non-technically too. So there's still a, a barrier to entry somewhat, but yeah. nevertheless. For sure. People say, oh, you can be a project manager, just manage the issues. But then it's a project that's some sort of deep static analysis or machine learning pipeline or whatever. And like, that's kind of hard to PM when you're not a, a technical person. But um, that being said, some of the best work I've seen on open source projects has been from people doing non-technical work who are still themselves at least a little or very technical. Like um, Orta the Rocks did a, such a good job revamping the Coco. Oh, shoot. I'm not an iOS person. Coco? pods that that whole area and then sure. Yeah. sure let's say that's the name of the project i'm thinking of <laughs> and then when he joined the typescript team he did a whole bunch of work on the typescript websites and that stuff is i don't know how much code he wrote i know that the typescript website is a non-trivial site has a lot of translation libraries and other logics in there but so much work just thinking about the docs and the flow of users and their user journey through it, it was really good stuff so that's that's the type of thing i try to emulate these days so we jumped right into all things open and, and we may come back around to it, but when you introduce yourself there, you talked about your book. I have all kinds of questions about the book. I have questions about writing a book. There is just so much I want to know. Um, <laughs> I have not read your book. So just you know, full disclosure, I did add you to the reading list. Um, so you're on my list. I will get to the book because I know TypeScript, but I don't know TypeScript. It's, it's one of those, I appreciate what it is and I use it. And then there's always this, I, I talk about this all the time. I have this treadmill that I'm on through my whole career. Learn something, forget it, learn it again. Yep. And then realize, oh yeah, I already knew this. I'm learning it again. Uh, and you know, and it's made me think about writing a book about some stuff and that's all these things. So any story, however you want to start this, if you want to go chronological, I'll tell you my interest in this selfishly. I want to know sure. the process of like, why did you write this book? How did you, how, like, how did this all go down? Like, I want to hear the chronological, like, origin story. But, but before we go there, if there's something else you want to say about the book, you know, lay it on us. I will say that your treadmill rings true for me. I, I too, feel like I do that a lot. Um, there are really three levels or three large overgeneralization of levels that people go through, I think, when they learn the stuff, oftentimes. The first is at a very high-level concepts base. What is this thing? If someone asks you in an elevator, you could say, oh yeah, no, TypeScript is whatever, like a typed thing that's on top of JavaScript and that's it, which is the high level theory of it. The second one is the middle level practical implementation. You'll learn TypeScript at some level. You can write a TS file, you know, okay, if it yells at me about the type being wrong, I can kind of fix it. And that's only the middle. The real true third deep level is mixing the two of them, the theory and the concepts to actually understand Maybe not how it works internally, but how it works in general. In TypeScript's case, it's the type system. How does a type system work? How does TypeScript work? And if you only stay at the for, at the second level, you'll keep reverting back to the first because you don't understand necessarily very deeply how it really works or how it's meant to play. So you kind of forget the details. There's no underpinning base for them. So for my book and for whenever I try to teach and or learn a thing, I really want to get to that third level, explain why it is the way it is, because otherwise people are just going to read it and then forget it a month later. So that's both my origin story for how I approach the book and also kind of my agreement that I have learned so many things so many times repeatedly. 
like monads and functional programming and, and how to get CSS to work in, in grids. I just, I can't re keep retain that information. I don't learn it deep enough. I love the juxtaposition of monads and positioning something in CSS because I think they are <laughs> they are equally difficult for their own reasons. Yeah. One, one I think is a faster, like you can learn this really fast and it may not stick or you may not remember it. And then the other one, is, I feel like this very steep learning curve. Uh, and then once you get it, you kind of see it everywhere. But it's funny that those are the two things Wait. that you reach for. What? Oh, which is which in what you? Oh, the monad definitely for me. I feel like has the 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 uh, the harder on ramp. It certainly is for me. And it's like once you get the concept, you're like I see this everywhere. Like we we do this everywhere. It's just, it's a collection mm -hmm. of properties on a thing. Like sure, right? Like. But until you use it and you grok, I feel like the CSS positioning, you get the on-ramp a little faster uh, where it's like, yeah, I want to position this thing. And I can usually find a cookbook and I can learn the basics of positioning and I can decide to use Flexbox or what have you. And you, if you're like me, if you're not doing that every day, like I know what Flexbox is and I know its capabilities, but I still go and play that little game online where you, have you played the game. Flexbox Froggy? Yeah, Flexbox Friday. Yeah. You know, and, and what a good game. Oh my God. Have that's how I go and remember Flexbox. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to play that game again. And that's what I always <laughs> type in Flexbox game. I couldn't even remember it was Froggy, but yeah. Much like Frogger, it is uh, fraught with danger. But to actually answer the question you asked, um, I've been, I've never intended to be like a community influencer thought leader person. I just really like a improving the state of the world for developing in, in JavaScript and now also then, therefore, TypeScript. And B, I like teaching. I think tech education is real important. Um, everyone, not everyone, a lot of people have some volunteering shtick that they do. Like some people, it's animals, other it's, you know, a particular area of research. For me, it's, I think tech education is important because we're all overpaid and we should get a larger group and a more diverse group of people in the industry. So I've always kind of been interested in, in tech ed. Um, when I was at Microsoft, I worked on an accessibility focused product in office when I, went to the East Coast, I went and worked for Codecademy, which is a free, now freemium, uh, learn to code site. So I, I've done a lot of work around teaching people, although I am not myself a teacher and would be a terrible one. And I kind of was writing blog posts and started giving conference talks. So O'Reilly actually reached out to me asking, do I want to write a learn TypeScript for beginners book, which subtly shifted into learn TypeScript for people who don't yet know TypeScript because the word beginner is kind of a no-no in some areas of teaching. Beginner, advanced, it, it's all meaningless. I'll explain that. So I don't like to think of things in terms of, uh, are you a beginner or are you intermediate or advanced? I think of things in terms of what do you already know? Because someone who is a beginner in TypeScript is genius level advanced for high school programming oftentimes. So the terms are very relative and subjective and can mean very different things but it's not actually useful in terms of teaching. But the things that are useful are how, how much self-efficacy does the person have? How well are they able to motivate themselves, feel confident in learning? And what are the building blocks that they're building with? So what confidence do they mash together these, these Lego blocks with as they learn stuff? So that's kind of the place that I try to come from when, when writing a book or, or thinking of how to write a blog post. So it took a year to write the book and, and now it's out, hooray. TLDR. <laughs> All right, so let's back up. So you were blogging and were you producing video content too? And then O'Reilly, how did O'Reilly find you? Found you through your blog or? 
I think the blog and maybe a conference talk or two. I've never uh, actually produced video content myself. Uh, I know that it's it's quite good, and there are people like Matt Pocock who do fantastic videos and stuff. But I only I only have written text things, and then recently started streaming on Twitch. Maybe I'll eventually do videos, but I just haven't had the time for it. So you have some written content out there. Somebody O'Reilly finds it, they approach you, ask you if you want to write this book, and you said it took a year to do it. So did you? I, I know kind of like the general process with most publishers, they'll ask you to, to build an outline, um, identify your audience. And so did they already have some stuff there that they presented to you that like, well, this is what we think the audience is, or this is the rough shape of the book that we want you to like Manning has the inaction series. And so the inaction books all kind of look the same, right? So there's kind of a formula. Did, or, did O'Reilly already have kind of like a formula for things they wanted you to do, or was it a blank slate? It was somewhere in between. They have a learning series that my book is part of, learning whatever, Java, Java oh, sure. TypeScript. But it's not as it's not as specific as what other series are. It's really just this is a series of things where if you don't know the thing and you don't know equivalence to the thing, you can learn the thing. Um, so we pretty quickly nailed down in the outline that the target audience is the very common case of a person who has learned JavaScript and potentially no other logical programming languages. They might not even know HTML, CSS, if they're just like a, say a backend node Dino programmer. The, the imperative thing for the book was we have to explain to these people who've never worked in a type system before in theory, potentially, what is a type system, which then necessitates explaining why do you want to use a type system? What's the benefit here? Because a lot of programmers who learn TypeScript come from a place of say C sharp or Java style knowledge. And to them, it's horrific that TypeScript is gradually typed that you could do things without the types. Right. And then some people coming in are the opposite case and they go, oh my God, why would you want to type anything? This is so obnoxious and annoying. So kind of bridging that gap between those people, that, that fine line of usefulness and obtuseness was hard. So I hope we did well in the first chapter, but I guess you'll find out when you read it. You identify the audience. They have the, this rough outline, the direction that you're going to go in. So how much as you start writing the book and, and researching for the book, I don't know, did you research as you write or did you kind of do, was it, was it, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious, like, did you kind of like binge research and, and run across like the whole outline or did you try to do, you know, something like you have your outline, so you chronologically, like I'm going to do a deep dive around interfaces and write everything about interfaces in one spot and then kind of pull things around or I'm curious how the research came in and, you know, did you find a limit to your knowledge? Sure. I did find limits in my knowledge. I learned a few things about TypeScript for each chapter, which is nice. Uh, it was, it would have been very discouraging as I'm writing this book to realize, oh my God, I don't know any of this stuff, but every other author I talked to said, yes, you will learn about the thing when you write the book. Yeah. It's natural. Uh, but the, the real process was we did start, as you mentioned, with an outline. In researching that outline, I both figured out the general flow of how I wanted to introduce stuff, which wasn't quite the same as the final product, but was pretty close. And then I also did a, they call it a competitive analysis on other books in the wild. Fun fact, there was already a book called Learning TypeScript from uh, a different publisher, which is <laughs> published or was authored by one of my open source friends in the industry, a very smart person named Remo Jansen, who ended up giving me the domain <laughs> learningtypeshift.com. Very grateful to Remo. We were actually made a library I used to use in Versify. Um, oh. Yeah, great library. But uh, yeah, so I, I kind of did a dive on everyone else who's writing books, whether it was something a little different from my target, like Effective TypeScript, which is a book I constantly reference and recommend, or equivalent ones like TypeScript in 50 Lessons. 
uh, just figuring out how is everyone else teaching TypeScript? What are the commonalities? And especially what are the differences? What are the explicit choices people make? Because there are little things that you don't really think about until you have to teach a subject. Like how do you introduce generics? For example, generics are an essential part of arrays, but you're not going to teach generics in chapter three of 12 because, oh my gosh, that's, that's one of the more complex parts of a language. So uh, in my outline, I taught generics in the second to last main chapter of the book. And in the final product, I ended up pushing them to the last main chapter of the book uh, before the extra credit fun stuff, because they, it's not that generics are a hard concept objectively. It is that they are often taught poorly and are also difficult to teach well, because there's a lot of confusing terminology. They're a little more technical and they introduce what is essentially a second programming language on top of your existing already new programming language. So in my opinion, you should wait to teach them as long as possible to get people as comfortable with TypeScript first. Hot take. Hmm. Yeah, no, I like that. <clears throat> I agree with that. Yay. So tell me about the editing process. So you get all this content together, uh, you're writing out chapters. Are they editing chapter over chapter? Uh, are you editing the whole, the whole book at the end? Like how's the editing process work? And did you feel like it was just constant bushwhacking and like, yeah, it's like, okay, this popped up and rewrite this and, or how, how is just in general? Yeah. Tell me everything about editing. Sure. Broad overview and then details. Broad overview was editing is incredibly useful. Finding good editors, reviewers is incredibly important. I mostly, but not completely, did a good job of working in the editing process, I feel. The end result had more typos than I wanted, but that was entirely my fault. Uh, so what happens, at least with O'Reilly, is you submit a chapter every X weeks, whatever the cadence you agree with your publisher ahead of time is. Um, for me, I was doing it part-time on the side while I had a full-time job and thus wasn't particularly fast. So we set, I think it was like a total of a year was the original plan and roughly how long it took. Um, so whatever it is, a year divided by 13 is a chapter every three or four weeks. Sure. I forget actually what the cadence was. Anyway, um, so I would submit a chapter every so often. Um, I would get reviews from my, my oh geez, I forget the, the titles. There are different types of editors. There's an acquisitions editor sure. and a publishing editor, all, all this. So my a very, very capable, extremely good person named Rita, to whom I owe very many thanks. Thank you, Rita. Uh, fixed a lot of stuff just you know off the bat. Then I also had nominated some peer people, like folks in the industry who were willing to tolerate me and, and lend time uh, to, to edit and whose names are in the book and thanked profusely there. Uh, so they would also review every few chapters. Like they would get a bundle of chapters, a third of the book or a fifth of the book. However, the key mistake I made as we're going through and writing chapters, and then I would also go back and edit previous chapters, the key mistake I made was twofold. One was I would go back and edit a lot because that's how I, as some agile modern programmer, expect to do things. You know, you're sure. constantly iterating, learning from the chapter five to redo some of chapter two. And then I also didn't pick the themes for each chapter. Every chapter has a different theme, like warriors or poets or whatever. And instead of putting those in, I just put temp one, temp two. So now there are a bunch of typos in the book where like the, the text references, I don't know, like Cleopatra and then the, the actual code references like, I don't know, Gandhi or something like, like very, diff very different things. That was, that was unfortunate. So there are a few typos there from when I like went back and then didn't get editor review. And sometimes if a chapter was really different, we would get the person to re-review it, but it's also just a pain 
as an editor or a viewer to keep reading the same chapter over and over again. So we try not to do that. Very much. I love it. I'm very interested. In, I, I, the more people I talk to, I'm, I'm very interested in this whole process. Um, and I think it's fascinating how it all comes together and, and especially technical material in books. And I don't know that I have the aptitude to, to write technical books at all, uh, but it's definitely something I, I want to explore and I need to start blogging. And my, my big problem is that I write like I talk and that doesn't carry over well with all audiences. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in getting content out there, whether it's a book or a video series or whatever, just do something small to start. Get yourself in the flow. You're not going to go from zero to book instantly or zero to total typescript.com instantly. You work your way up, you figure out what works and doesn't work for you. And, and you gain experience that way. Segway. Perfect segue. I, ha I gained some experience. I gained some very relevant experience teaching a collegiate level class and teaching JavaScript. And TypeScript was in our stretch goals in the syllabus. Uh, and we unfortunately did not get there. But, you know, a few minutes ago, you said you don't think you think you'd be a bad teacher. You wouldn't be a good teacher. So what makes you think that working at, uh, did you say you were at Code, Code Academy? Code Academy, yeah. Yeah. Fun fact, there's no A in the middle, which has confused a lot of people. Okay. Yeah, it's like a Bernstein, Berenstein, Bears situation. No one no one notices. Um, I think that I don't have the personal patience and tolerance to be a very effective teacher at scale. If I find someone who I relate to or they're at a similar place in their career to where I was at that stage, then I, I work with them very well. But I lack that kind of broad empathy where I can look at a classroom, make something that works for them. And then when individuals come to me, I can give them tailored responses. I don't know. Uh, this is not a tested hypothesis. It's just uh, something I think about myself and I haven't had the time and positioning to, to prove or disprove. That's a hundred percent of the problem I have. So that's funny. That's why. <laughs> okay. So there's a lot. Yeah. There's like a direction I want to go here with you around this because that's a hundred percent my problem. And I, I struggled with the creative side of coming up with projects in the class, like ended up surveying friends and I surveyed the class, the class, they were all thrown off with me. They just did not know what to do with me. And that's unfortunate because I went when the class started in the very first week of school, it was a 500 level college class at all juniors and seniors. And I told them, I said, you know, let's just make a list. We'll do a Kanban board and move cards or move sticky notes across the board, but just write out topics that you're interested in. What do you want me to teach you? And I thought I was doing them a service by giving them this opportunity to direct the class. Ultimately, that worked for like three of the students. And then the rest of the class was lost because they couldn't figure out what to even ask. And they they came into this class, some of them with instructor permission, and were missing some prereq classes. And so some of them, turns out, didn't even know JavaScript, and we were in this advanced JavaScript class. Uh, and, and you know, and it was a mistake that I made. And I had some comp sci kids in there. I had some journalism kids in there, new media, and it was an interesting mix. But they definitely weren't. The class was not taught to be like program heavy or or CS theory heavy or anything like that. And yeah, I struggled a lot. Hmm. I, I question whether it's even possible to teach a course where some of the students are high level comp sci, like they know programming really well already, and some of them don't know any programming, if that's yep. the interpretation I, I got there. You got it. That's hard. Yep. I can also see, just remembering how snarky I was in college and how everyone else was around me, 
the the angry muttering. This guy doesn't even know what he's going to teach us. What 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 is he doing here? That's that might have been a thing too. You you absolutely. Oh, don't worry. They got their revenge Great. at review time. <laughs> Great. So it's something I've reflected on a lot, and I think you should teach class if you've never taught a class. You should you should absolutely adjunct teach class. I mean, I don't want you to be miserable, and you, if you already think you you wouldn't <laughs> enjoy it, I mean, sure, don't do it. But the thing that I think is interesting, you say you don't have the sympathy. <clears throat> Your talk at All Things Open, you have a very good stage presence and a very good demeanor when you're talking. Your tone is really good. You're very relaxed and you're calm. You are collected. And it's like you're the anti-me because I get all jacked up and I get all excited when I present and I like go fast. And I was just I was impressed. You were very the anti-me. I was when I was like thinking, like as I'm like, I I listened to most of what you said, but the whole time I'm thinking, like, wow, he's got a good thing going here. Like, I really like this. The vibe in the room was good. So I would that I feel like would naturally lend itself to being a very good teacher. Certainly a good instructor. I, I kind of draw you. a difference. I do think there's a difference between teaching and instructing. Oh yeah. For sure. And by the way, thank you very much. I appreciate that. To be clear, I when I say teacher, I'm I'm thinking of like I was just hanging out with some relatives and they're both high school or elementary school teachers. That's what I'm thinking of. I would love to be an adjunct professor because as the son of a professor for for almost four decades, uh, there is a stark difference between you know a professor an instructor versus like a teacher teacher. And some people do both, but very often and unfortunately in this absurd education system of ours, they're not the same. So yeah, would love to adjunct at some point if I have the time. I think you'd be very good at it. So if you have the time, all right. So, so what else is going on? So you're open, you're doing open source work. You are the primary maintainer for ESLint TypeScript. Did I say it right? Is the ESLint TypeScript plugin? I, I am neither the, the primary way? maintainer, nor is it that way. It's the other way around. Yeah. TypeScript ESLint, but thank you. TypeScript yes. ESLint. I thought you were the primary maintainer on that. I'm the most vocal maintainer, which oftentimes gives that impression, but we are one of the worst projects to try to advertise. We are not TypeScript. We are not ESLint. I'm not the primary maintainer. People people look at it and, and their first reaction is, oh, you work on TypeScript. That's cool. And I'm like, well, I contribute, but I'm not on the team. Please, please don't think I am because then I'll get on their bad side. And I, I once made the mistake of saying on Twitter in a conversation, oh, I think that's a bug in TypeScript. And I, that, that, I was wrong. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I I should also, by the way, define what it means to be open source, because what I've learned through this is that a lot of people have misconceptions or just don't know what that is. I don't work for a company. I don't have a job, which has been very difficult to explain to my relatives who barely know what it is to program. Sure. Um, I have this one relative who keeps telling me that my business must be going well and asking me when I'm going to hire more people. And I keep telling him, no, no, I'm not. I, I don't want to be a manager. Um, I, I work on what is currently my dream job of just, I contribute to projects on the internet on GitHub that I think are useful to the world and fun for me, which has mostly been the project TypeScript ESLint, which is fully open source. We are the tooling again, that lets you run TypeScript or pardon me, <laughs> that lets you run ESLint or TypeScript. Gosh, you know what? My, I've had these allergies anyway. We are TypeScript ESLint to the project that lets you run ESLint and Prettier on TypeScript. We just did a whole branding thing. Right now we're recording on Sunday, the 11th, Monday, the 12th. Our website is going to do its weekly refresh and we're going to have the new logo. I have co-designed. It's a whole thing. But Great. Uh, my, Amazing. I'm so excited. I'm so excited about this freaking logo. James Henry, who's 
one of the other maintainers, actually the creator of the thing, uh, really helped with that. One would say the logo was his idea. Uh, the, the, the project receives money through people who donate voluntarily. There's no money system that people have to do. Anyway, we get money from nice companies like Indeed and Sourcegraph and Century and, and actually Code Academy. So we, we distribute that money amongst the maintainers and it's not yet a full tech salary, but I did hit uh, minimum wage this month through my personal open source sponsorships and TypeScript BS line. So I'm pretty Congratulations. happy about that. Thank you. I have a job, sort of. <laughs> but yeah, um, I the, the nice thing about working in open source full time is I get to choose what projects I work on. I get to do things that I think are really useful for the industry, like TypeScript BSLint. The downside is I kind of have to work on projects that have some visibility so people pay me. And then also I don't have a full job. I don't have a team, a company, a, a manager and mentors who are working on the same stuff as me. So it can be a little lonely, a little isolating at times. But I go on podcasts and stuff like this. So, you know, I got the community that way. So were you remote before the pandemic? No, I was not. I was in person. And you know what? I There were pros and cons to both sides and a lot of accessibility concerns about being in person. But gosh darn, do I miss having it in an office? Yeah. It just, you, you say it can get lonely. You talk about being on the podcast. Like, <clears throat> you know, I don't know. I have not recorded. And this, I'm not going to edit this out. I'm going to leave this in. At, you know, you and I are talking, like the 14th episode I've recorded. And they're all going to release in 2023. And I still haven't recorded what's going to be episode zero. And I think a lot about what am I going to say when I record episode zero? Because I'm recording episode zero after having everything I'm going to release next year recorded or close to it, very close to it. And I've thought a lot about that. And, and you know, I sent you the video. People are like, why, Lee? Why are you doing this podcast? You know, and I was like, it's, it's totally selfish. It is totally selfish. And right now I'm in some kind of like sabbatical thing about to attend uh, a program in Q1 2023. And, and leading up to that, I am not actively working. I have like a little like, you know, like 10 hour a week contract thing right now, but, but I'm not full-time employed and I've been catching my breath. And this podcast was all about me talking to people that I enjoy talking to. And it was, and it's all about exploring things that I'm interested in with people that I find are interesting. And, you know, it's an investment. I appreciate you taking the time as everybody has. It's an investment on your part to sit down and chat with me. But, you know, you talk about like missing people, you come do podcasts, you know, I, I've been in this weird spot. I love being remote, but I do not like working alone. And it yeah. has made me this really odd, like mold. Like I don't fit in anywhere. You go to a remote company. I think naturally it attracts a lot of introverted people. If you are trying to be remote at a company that they'll let you be remote, let you, but they have offices, then you're kind of just in orbit as the remote person. Cause you're not in yeah. the office. And I'm still struggling to find, I've been on those teams in the past, but I'm still struggling to find another team like that, another company like that, that gets remote, that is still social while being remote. So anyways, that's why I was curious. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, I totally agree with that, that upsetting dichotomy that even if you're, if you're the only or one of the few remote people at a company, then it's, it's just hard for the company to include you. There are all these practices that add effort to learn, like, for example, at Codecademy, one of the things that we only learned the hard way was when you're in a meeting room and there are some people on, on the Zoom call or Google whatevers, then you should have a laptop for each person so that their facial expressions are seen. So that when someone is about to speak, the little ticks, the little ah, like that, that comes through on the video. But you don't know to do that until you either learn through some trainings or you learn the hard way that all the remote people are suddenly mysteriously more quiet than everyone else. 
it's like all these little things. And I, I, what I also really hate is that it is, there are so many advantages to being remote that it's so hard to advocate for in person. Like people who physically cannot go into an office, what do we do for them? Like they, we baseline, they have to be included. It has to be an inclusive workplace for them. But then I also, I just, I get depressed when I, I don't hang out with people in real life. It's like a real thing for me. So, you know, it's, it's not the same level as like person will die if they go into the office, but it's still like a, you know, a mental struggle for me. So I, I, I agree. I've never seen a company strike that balance perfectly. It's hard. And I look forward to the day in maybe a hundred years where we, we figure this out as an industry. I, I really look forward to that. I hope to be alive then. With this and, and the direction that I, I kind of wanted to go to kind of pick your brain. I, I have contributed to some big open source projects with very small PRs, small bug fixes, updates and test cases, things that I would generally think were helpful. Got them in, got them merged. And it's, it was fun. I am, I am not a maintainer of anything popular. I've never tried to become a part of a team that's maintaining anything popular. The thoughts crossed my mind a couple of times with Django and becoming a core contributor to Django, but it, it is a time commitment that I've not wanted to make selfishly. I've not wanted to make. And maybe I don't even have the technical skill. I mean, who knows? You know, there's so much stuff going on in the core of Django, especially the ORM. I would never want to touch that stuff anyways. Like it's not my, not my bag. Uh, as Austin Powers would say, right? Not my bag, baby. Um, <laughs> oh, behave. Yeah, right. <laughs> so tell me, like, how did you get into contributing to, I'm going to say, right, TypeScript ESLint? Did I get it right that time? I should write this you down did? in front of me. And, you know, has it been, do you all meet in person? Are you physically close to anyone that you, that's one of the like core contributors? Like, do y'all hang out on Zooms? I'm curious about all this. Like, how'd you get into this? And is there a social side to who you work with on your open source stuff? You know, I've never met any of my co-maintainers in person. I came close. Um, I visited Australia, which is where Brad, one of the other maintainers who until recently actually worked on Flow at Meta, which is what the like the only major competitor to TypeScript running in production today, to my knowledge, which cracks me up. Brad is very knowledgeable on all things superset of JavaScripty. Uh, but no, I was like sick the one day or something like it, it, it didn't work out. We were just far enough that we couldn't make it work. Uh, we got one person in Australia, one person in uh, oh shoot UAE. Shoot, I keep forgetting where James is. I, I have it written down. I feel bad. Sorry, James. Um, and then one person in Connecticut who's relatively close to me, the, the newest person. But no, I've never met any of them. Uh, I would love to do more social things. Sometimes we'll hop on like a Twitch stream together. I've been meaning to do one with Brad for the longest time. But no, I, I kind of slowly rolled into where I am with TypeScript ESLint, which is advice I give to people in general with open source. Slowly roll into the, the places you end up being. Don't try to, I don't know, force yourself into some project immediately without any context on that project, unless it's something you really want to do, in which case slowly start with what you described, bug fixes, adding tests, whatever good first issues they have, then start working on small features, then bigger features, then, and so on and so forth. Because what a lot of people do is they make the mistake of thinking, oh, I need to prove myself in open source or in this new company or this new thing, whatever. And they take on this huge issue or huge feature that has so much context, years of context that they want to prove themselves as able to tackle. But the correct, pedagogically, the correct way to learn something is to start small, learn about one thing at a time and work your way towards it. So my journey was 
back in the day, years and years ago, before TypeScript ESLint, there was a project called TSLint, which is such a better name for us. But unfortunately, it's a different project that has since been deprecated. I helped kill it uh, years ago. So if you're still using TSLint, which is neither TypeScript nor ESLint, you should, you should stop. Talk to me if you need help. Um, so I, I had this project of mine that was in pure JavaScript and was terrible code. It was my first big JS thing. So I started using linting. And then when I switched to TypeScript, I started using TSLint. And I was really excited about this because it was finding bugs and style inconsistencies and stuff for me. So I started contributing to TSLint, like the occasional typo or bug fix or, and then features and so on. And then I became a maintainer on TSLint. And very shortly after that, humorously shortly after, the decision was made to deprecate TSLint and move to TypeScript ESLint. So that was that was a great thing. I got onto the project, got all excited about it, and then almost immediately, within months, we were killing it. So I actually <laughs> didn't join on TypeScript ESLint. Immediately after that, I was kind of a little burned out, a little busy. So I worked on a project TSLint to ESLint config, which is as poorly named as most projects in my area, uh, which converts your TSLint config to an ESLint config. And then only, I only went full-time open source earlier this year, and it was around that time, uh, beginning of 2022, that I really joined on TypeScript ESLint as a maintainer. So that's my advice to people. Start slow, roll your way in. Don't, don't dive into the deep end unless you're ready for it. I think it's interesting that you jumped into linting as well. Did TSLint operate on ASTs, uh, sorry, it for did. people listening, abstract, abstract syntax trees. It did, it did, yeah. An AST, abstract syntax tree. We actually have, I think, a pretty good explainer on the TypeScript ESLint website. We have a blog, it's powered by DocuSource, one of my favorite projects ever. So if you're curious about ASTs, go to our blog. That's um, another meta, DocuSource is another meta project, right? Yeah, yeah. And it brings me so much joy <laughs> that uh, we finally have like a really good Doc site focus thing because for for years Gitbook was looking like that, but then they like put a bunch of stuff behind the paywall and they stopped adding new features and I don't know what happened there. Gitbook is good, but DocuSource really brings me joy. Uh, but yeah, so ASTs are a representation of your source code. They sound much more intimidating than they really should be, but it's the way that programs like ESLint, TSLint, TypeScript, any compiler looks at your source code and makes informed decisions based on it. So TSLint took a look at your AST and told you, hey, I see you have, whatever, a, a variable declaration with a var. You should use letter const or little things like that. I think it's, well, and what I was going to say, I think it's interesting that that's where you started. Twice now, I have wanted to get some features built that operate on top of languages. and Like there's a Go thing that I've wanted to do, and I put it off, and I don't know if it's good or bad that I put it off and didn't do it. Um, Go doesn't have really good documentation generators outside of the GoDoc tool itself, which is built into Go. Nobody at the time, which this may have changed, this was like two and a half years ago. At the time, no one had written anything that would take your Go code, parse it, and pull out all the documentation bits and offer them up to you in something like, I don't know, have you used Unist by chance? Universal Syntax Tree? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's 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 inside a DocuSource at some point. They their plugins use it, something like yeah. this. Yes. So that was my thing. I was like, okay, I want prettier docs for my Go stuff. I don't want to just live in the Go ecosystem. 
ultimately I want web-based docs. So it made a lot of sense to go towards Unist with this. So I was going to write this tool that had converted the Go AST over to the Unist style AST, at least for documentation, just documentation bits. And I, I put it off and I put it off. And this is like this common thread with me. And I think other programmers is like, you have this idea, you maybe think it's good. <laughs> you may or may not register a domain name for it. And oh, then yeah. you just don't do anything <laughs> with it. And, and, but the, you know, I'd seen stuff around, you know, syntax trees and I've used things in, in Python for a long time around that. And so, you know, the fact that most languages have some tooling for this, I was comfortable with it. And I was looking, I was like, yeah, I want to do this documentation thing. And then the other one that I ran into was wanting to do some stuff with Markdown Lint and Mark, and that does the same mm. thing. It parses your Markdown into syntax tree and then lets you lint things on it. And I found some things that appeared to be missing. And I don't know if, you know, they're, if they're there now. Or if it was my ignorance, but it was something around definition links. It's like definition links. They were not represented in Markdown Lint in the tree that you could process that I could find. And so it was like getting into like a whole thing about like, I'm going to have to edit how this thing parses to pull these things out so that I have a new node. I don't know. There was like a whole thing. And I don't know. It was hopefully and probably just my ignorance. But did you ever run into anything like that? Like you start digging into all this and... Did you ever feel like, wow, there's maybe a lot more to this and I just don't even feel like, I mean, obviously you stuck, stuck it out with TypeScript, ESLint and TSLint, but did you ever like bump into these walls that kind of make you think like, I really don't want to make this time investment at this point? Yeah, for sure. And everyone, everyone has a unique journey, the context they're coming from, the things that make them happy or sad. Everyone has a unique brain. Like for me, linting sticks really well, understanding ASTs because I feel like I really understand things that are pure in isolation. And when you add fancy libraries or frameworks or whatever, that's when I get all confuzzled and confused, but everyone else is their own thing. Everyone is different, but yeah, uh, sometimes something is too complicated. Like once in a while, I'll try to contribute to TypeScript even now, especially now, now that I'm arrogant and think I can do anything and I'll get in there and have just no idea what's going on. There's actually a, a bug on the TypeScript issue tracker that still annoys me. Uh, it had a bunch of attention. It's go to definition on string literals. Like if you have a, let's say a type that allows a string literal, like let's say a function that takes in either up or down as a string, and then you call that function passing the string down, right click on string down, go to definition. TypeScript is not built to be able to tell you, oh, it's the parameter of a function. So go to the type for that function. It's just not implemented. And there's a bounty on it. Like people from TRPC and T3 and all this were very excited about it. And I tried, I failed. So yeah, sometimes, you know what, this is motivating me. I really want to go tackle that again. I wish I had the time. Sometimes, yeah, you just, you hit a brick wall or a better analogy would be you hit an incline that is too steep for you to hike over just yet. You need to go practice on the lower inclines or some analogy like that. Uh, and that's fine. You know, that happens to everyone. I'd say it might be a sign that you're in the wrong area. It might be the sign that you're going too fast, that you should tackle something else first in that area. It might be a sign that, you know what, you're tired, you haven't slept in 16 hours, maybe go take a shower, eight hours of sleep, come back the next day. You never know. But as long as it's not a sign to quit, then you're good. What if I feel like, you were speaking of inclines, what if I just feel like I'm Sisyphus and everything is a permanent incline and I'm just forever pushing this ball up the incline? (laughs) You know what? Have you ever heard the phrase, one must imagine Sisyphus happy? No. Interesting. No. Tell me more. 
one must imagine Sisyphus happy. So I'm misinterpreting this thing intentionally. The The real thing is this from some philosopher or writer or someone is saying that uh, we must imagine Sisyphus happy because it's an absurd situation. But if Sisyphus is happy, then we should like, like our lives are absurd. We should accept that. My interpretation is, you know what? As long as I'm getting work done and I seem to be making progress and it's consistent, reliable work, I'm happy. And the, I started using that because I was on a, uh, my last few months at Codecademy, I was working on this project that had floundered in development tech for years and was just really happy that I was finally getting it through. But it felt like there's always one more bug fix or bug push out there. So I kept, I started saying that when the PMs would ask me what it'd be done. Uh, but, you know, Sisyphus gets a good workout. If you're constantly fixing these little things, it's not like you're pushing the same boulder up a hill over and over again. You're getting stronger. You know, it's what took you three weeks to push up the hill on year X in year X plus one, you're you know, one handing and working out with the other hand. So I don't think it's a bad thing that that you you keep trying and doing stuff. If you're gaining experience from it, if you're building your reputation, if you're improving the world around you, that might be a good thing. Do you read any stoicism? Do you follow any of the stoicism stuff? And You know, in high school, I got real into Diogenes and cynicism, and I just haven't had the emotional or mental energy to get back into philosophy. I think part of it, part of it is that I just, I, I hit a happy place in my life and I don't want to ruin that. <laughs> and other is I just haven't had the time. I think also is that a lot of people who read philosophy are really annoying about it. It's like Rick and Morty, the show, tangentially. Like, it's, it's a fantastic show, but gosh darn, is the, the fandom terrible. So, I don't know. Are you about to tell me something really good and useful that I should have learned years ago? Nope, not at all. There's just the, you know, there's the, kind of the phrase in there. And I'm, I'm totally my friend. I don't follow a lot of this. I've read a couple of the books. You know, the challenge is the way is kind of. I don't know, maybe even the name of one of the Stoicism books, but that's just what it reminds me of. Imagine Sisyphus happy fits into the challenges the way. So you embrace the challenge because the challenge is the way. Um, but well, all right. So we totally have to take a tangent here. I like Rick and Morty, but <laughs> I don't know anything about the fandom. I watch the shows and my wife rolls her eyes at me and she's like, is this funny? And I'm like, ah, it's pretty funny to me. It's pretty funny. Uh, so tell me more. What, what about the fandom? Cause I'm kind of under a rock. I don't. Oh, it's 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 a show about, you know, philosophy and existentialism and and the multiverse and nihilism and Rick is is this main character who in real life is an insufferable turd but in the show is portrayed as heroic. So of course, all sorts of people who are like that in real life think that Rick is a god and we should worship him and anyone who doesn't like Rick and Morty is just too stupid to appreciate it. Obviously that's all stupid, but you know, that's that's the impression that some people have of the fan base which is only sometimes true okay i'm definitely missing this full experience is this on Good. reddit like where is oh, yeah. this at yeah it's reddit, the yeah. reddit it's the twitter it's the internet but you know what if you don't like the show it's not because you're stupid it's just not the show for you that's fine i like the show but you know. and i will say there are some very weak episodes there are episodes that do not hold up compared to other sure. episodes so maybe show that expected. doesn't apply to yeah, yeah as to be expected but i don't know i feel like that's that's something i ran into talking to to other folks about the show, but definitely not even I would say a hardcore fan is maybe they saw a bad episode and they kind of haven't went back after that. They're kind of like, oh yeah, when like another whole season's out, I'll go binge it. I'm like, ah, yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Good. 
It's the same thing with TypeScript. You know, some people have a bad experience with TypeScript or some other, you know, any arbitrary technology and they think, oh, the technology sucks. And then people who like the technology and are bad at being people hear that and they go, no, the technology is perfect. You just suck. And both of those are incredibly false statements. You know, sometimes tech isn't, no technology is perfect for everything. TypeScript is not always the right choice. I think it's the right choice most of the time, but it's possible to have a bad experience with it and dislike it. That's fine. But the, but the compiler's slow. <laughs> oof, oof. You hit, you hit me hard there with that one. Though they're, they're, they're working on a 5.0 where they converted the compiler internally. So they used to use this old thing called namespaces, which were like a fancy way of setting up objects and that had members that you refer to in TypeScript. That's not quite deprecated, but very much discouraged language feature. And they converted it internally to use modern ECMAScript modules. Um, and now it's like, X percent faster, Y percent smaller. Very, very wonderful thing. It's no Rust project, but it's it's the 5.0 for TypeScript is going to be a sweet release. Very excited about it. Yeah, I don't know any of this, so this is good. All right, well, so we got we got a few minutes left here. I had I've been taking notes, you know, as we've been talking, and we've we've kind of bounced around and answered some of those. One thing on the you know the community and whatever before we go in and we talk about type statins, maybe some more like nitty gritty TypeScript stuff or just general typing things. I want to talk about the Twitch stream. So you said sometimes you Twitch stream. Oh yeah. Sometimes you Twitch stream. Tell me about that. Are you, are you keeping a schedule right now? Are, sure. you, are you streaming like every Wednesday at 10 a.m. or something or? You know what? Keeping is a hard, <laughs> stronger word than I unfortunately am able to use, but I'm claiming a schedule, yes. Uh, every, this is Eastern Standard Time. Every Tuesday at, oh God, I don't even know my schedule. Every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. Eastern and every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern, in theory. In practice, I have a lot of family things that are happening and you know other stuff, so it's, it's touch and go, maybe once a week on average. But um, I like Twitch streaming because it forces me to be more open and to explain what I'm doing. I think that's really useful. I don't personally learn well uh, with videos. I can't stand it. But I know a lot of people like following along and find that useful. So it's a good way for me to, you know, get what I'm doing out there. Also, I'm about to earn my first $50 on Twitch. I didn't even, I did not consider this a money making <laughs> venue, but apparently it's, you know, for the year, $50. Congratulations. Google still uh, owes me. I want to say it's like 160 bucks. I'm under some threshold. They raised the threshold like two or $300. And I'm under the threshold at which they will pay me. Oof. And it is a video on YouTube of my Jeep stuck in the snow. And it was a joke video, but people got really mad about me being stuck in the snow with a Wrangler. Like it was literally in my parking garage. And I was just like, I was right next to a, um, like a Mercedes or something. I don't remember. It was a very expensive car and the Jeep couldn't like climb over the embankment where the snow plow came through. Cause it was just pushed all up under the bumper. And so I posted this, like, I don't know, 30 Oof. second video. It's a Jeep stuck in the snow. And it's, it had like, I don't know, 2000 comments of everybody calling me an idiot and says I can't drive. And it had like 40,000 views. And now the ad money from that added up. And it was like a hundred and some dollars that Google still owes me. They won't pay me because it's so under the threshold. Every time you get to the threshold or about uh, to Well, the algorithm, the as you know, the algorithm has not promoted the video in quite some time. So it, it doesn't <laughs> get the views that it used to. But yeah, that happens. Oh, well. You definitely threatened some people's masculinity with that, uh, so, that video then. Yeah. Or they were trying to threaten mine. I don't know which way it goes. I can't drive, apparently. Apparently. You're about to make some money on Twitch. You are keeping a schedule. Give yourself some credit there. So, yeah, so you're keeping a schedule. You're you're streaming. 
how are you deciding what to stream? How far out are you planning? It is very touch and go that week. I'll decide most of the streams just default to me opening up my bookmark of search for issues and pull requests that need maintenance or looking at on TypeScript PSLint. Sometimes I'll find a task that I think is particularly good for it. The problem with TypeScript PSLint as an open source project and the problem with any linting project or compiler or language is that you're working on an AST, which is a, as with any acronym, a thing that people find intimidating. So it's not the best good first issue or like learn to open source area. It's a little unfortunate. I'm actually going to be starting a project this coming week. So middle of December uh, that I'm hoping is going to be a lot better, like a more generic Next.js TypeScript site. But yeah, it's just whatever I think someone could randomly tune into the stream, ideally without AST experience, but like most of the time, just someone who you know is willing to read up on it for five minutes and then just learn. So just going back through my history, it's a lot of like reviewing issues and pull requests. I try not to do too much documentation work because just it's a lot of text and I don't think that translates well over videos, but Hey, sometimes that's what I got to do. I tried streaming a couple times and I enjoy it. I like to me, streaming and the conference presentations, they both tickle the same parts of my brain. They, I like the performative part of it. I mean, here we are recording a podcast. So at my choosing, so I mean, it's yeah. I like the performance <laughs> part of it. I, and, but I don't know. It was weird. It was like, in some cases I got bogged down in the technical details. Like, how am I going to share my screen? What am I going to share of my screen? And I was like, you know, getting all into, you know, OBS. And so I went through that whole, the honeymoon phase of being distracted with all the tech. And then I kind of hit a wall of what I was going to do and trying to decide if my streams were of any value to myself or anyone else. I don't think they're of a lot of value to anyone else. Uh, but then I started, you know, it was kind of like, what's the value to me? And one thing that I learned about Twitch that I didn't know is my videos disappeared. They got deleted. So I thought they hung around like, oh, oh. yeah. So <laughs> I realized one of the things that Twitch helped me do is it gave me an artifact to show like that I had done something and it made me value my contribution to my own projects because it was like, oh, I didn't air quotes, waste a Saturday afternoon, I streamed for two hours on a Saturday afternoon. And it was like having that recorded stream, this artifact out of it. I don't know. It really was like this motivating thing for me. And so I want to do more of it. I just feel like I don't have content that pills anybody in. I don't know. So are you, do you grab your videos? Do you put them on YouTube after they're recorded or? I do. Yeah, I actually, so once in a while I'll have a guest appear and I actually lost a guest video because I, I didn't realize that you had to explicitly link your Twitch and Amazon accounts to get the like extended time that they will last. So that was unfortunate, but yeah, now I have a, I have a, a slightly somewhat reasonably set up youtube.com slash, uh, at Joshua K Goldberg, which I, I even, I used to be really into Photoshop as a high schooler. So I Photoshopped nice. a banner and everything. Um, so I'm hoping this year I'll get around to live streaming to both Twitch and YouTube, like a dual stream. Um, I'm trying to spend as little money as possible because as I referenced earlier, I make very little money in open source and I'm trying to be scrappy. So instead of paying for a very good service, like a restream or paying, I'm just, you know, OBSing it for those who haven't used it. OBS is the very capable and somewhat hard to get used to uh, software that many of us streamers use. Once you get used to it, it's great. It's just like, you know, you have to learn how things work. Uh, so yeah, I do upload everything to posterity for YouTube. And I also make a Twitter thread for everything I do. Like I will, I will post in the morning of, Hey, I'm going to be doing this, which half the time is just open source. 
And and then as I look at issues or pull requests or create them or whatever, I'll, I'll post that on the Twitter thread. And then I put the links to those and small descriptions in the YouTube description of the video. So you can always go back and find my old stuff. Most of my videos have under 50 views. Um, the, the average is like five or something like this, like the median is five. But uh, I think it's it's good practice. I don't think that my production quality is very high. So when I do have the time, when all my things settle, I'm really looking forward to becoming like an actual like resource for people, like some someone that's consistently reliably good rather than right now, which is, you know what, sometimes I hop on and sometimes it's like potato quality and my parents, you know, abandoned bedroom from years ago or whatever. I like it. Well, I like the authenticity you have there. I think that's really important. I mean, at that and that <laughs> probably goes back to your talk at ATO. I haven't looked to see if you had any other talks recorded. Um, so I don't know if, if you always have that same sort of tone and just very chill about things, but yeah, there's an authenticity to that too. I like it. I did see that you were streaming this week with a guest. So yeah, I'll try to catch that. Thanks. Yeah. And actually, uh, this is a good segue to me. If you want to see other videos of me talking, first of all, I find it very surprising that people, you're not the first to refer to my speaking style as like chill or relaxing because I am a high energy, high stress person. I am constantly, you know, vibrating with fear. So the fact that I'm hiding that I'm masking very well is it's surprising and amusing to me. But joshuakgoldberg.com has links to my Twitter, Mastodon, blog, and whatever, Twitch, uh, and a big old list of talks. I had a year-end goal of redesigning it, uh, and maybe I'll get to that. Uh, but it has, if you look up just the word video or videos, just video on the site, you can see there are like a dozen and a half videos of my old talks. Um, I also recently on my blog, which is linked there, blog.joshuakgoldberg.com, have a large blog post, how I apply to conferences, split into the actual description of how I apply to them for anyone who wants to apply to conferences or is interested. And then also a big FAQs thing, which have links to some of my favorite video stuff talks that I've given. Um, I will say I'm still relatively new to speaking in person. I've only done like I don't know, four or five of them. So you can, you can see the progression of me learning how to say um less and explain better and procrastinate fewer things over the years, but I'm really looking forward. I think 2023 is going to be a good year for, good. for speaking in person. We're going to get really awesome. good at it, I hope. All right. So last thing here, um, and, and I'll let you take us out however long, if you spend 30 seconds or if you want to spend, you know, 15 or 20 minutes on it, choice is yours. I want to talk about oh, TypeStat because you talked about TypeStat in your talk at, at ATO. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, yeah, yeah, this is totally a thing. Like I have suffered through uh, all of the problems that you're trying to solve with TypeStat. And there's also other things that I want, which you'll see where this is very self-serving for me, where I already mentioned, like there's some things in Go that I kind of wanted to pull into Unis so that I could do things with them in JavaScript land and what have you. But there's also this dream uh, that I'll have really good code generation between TypeScript and Go. I know TypeScript has way more types available and it, Go is very restrictive. It's not as expressive. So there's not going to ever be a one-to-one. -one. But there's, you know, TypeStat inspired me to be like, yes, I should explore more of what I can code generate one way or the other. So yeah, take it away. Tell us all about TypeStat. Sure. What a terrible name. <laughs> great, great opener. Um, it's, thanks. This project sucks and you shouldn't use it. Uh, so TypeStat is a project of mine that I started years ago and have been very slowly working on ever since, off and on, mostly off, that converts JavaScript to TypeScript which is the big, extremely exciting thing for many. And then also can convert TypeScript to better TypeScript, meaning improve your types, enable the strict whatever flag that you're hoping to enable. 
the logo is the TypeScript logo, but with a medical Red Cross style plus instead of the TS and TypeStat is like vaguely medical to me. It's like healing your code. So it actually makes sense as a name, but no one gets it. So obviously that makes it a bad name. Eventually I will replace the name with something like TS Mutate or TS. So it is or isn't about getting types stat. You know what? It's kind of slow. So <laughs> that's, the, okay. that's the big problem there. At the time, so I started writing in 2018. The story was I was switching full-time employment from Microsoft to Codecademy. Codecademy was a pure JavaScript shop. They had like one flow file checked in from an engineer who experimented with it and that's it. And I knew I would be converting them to TypeScript because that's what I do. And I also knew that a lot of people in industry also wanted to convert to TypeScript. This was 2018. TypeScript was only in this first few years of everyone needs to use this rather than, oh, this is pretty cool mode. And you know what? There was no good tool at the time to convert from JavaScript to TypeScript. Now there have been tools released since. In fact, Airbnb has a tool that, oh shoot, I forget the name. It's like TS Morph or not TS Morph is a helper library, TS Enhance or Mutate or something. It's a better tool, but TypeStat is the most advanced tool right now in open source that I know of. And what TypeStat does is instead of the really brute force approach of renaming all your file extensions from JS to TS and then putting a colon space any or at TS expect error in front of anything, that's a problem. It actually tries to make logical deductions about your types and give you the correct or not incorrect type everywhere to get your code as TypeScripty as possible. And the way it does that is it has a giant list of mutators, kind of equivalent or analogous to lint rules. Each mutator operates on a specific classification of this code is wrong and has a specific type of fix that it applies. They're all text-based mutations or AST mutations. So you might have a fixer that says, oh, I see you have a variable without uh, an, an initial value or a type. I will give it a type. Or, hey, I see that you have a React component that doesn't have props declared. I will look at all the places you render this React component, and I will see all the different props and figure out each of those props, whether it's optional and also what types it's allowed to be, and then I will create a props type for you. So that, that latter one is kind of advanced and takes a lot of code. The first one is, well, actually TypeScript has an API for that. So you can just call it TypeScript. So it keeps going through your code. It loops through your files over and over and over again, applying these mutators that create mutations, the terminology for which I stole from Stryker, the mutation testing framework, great framework. And then eventually it will find no more mutations to make and it'll spit out your code. Now, in theory, this is wonderful. It, this means that it will always, as long as each mutation doesn't have an infinite loop bug or just adds the same thing over and over um, or conflict with other mutations, as long as they always get it slightly better at least, eventually it'll fix your code base. In practice, two problems. One, this is really hard. Uh, people, people who are writing JavaScript, not TypeScript, make wacky things that are hard to represent in the type system. That's just a universal rule. If you're not using TypeScript, you're not thinking about it. And Agnostic of specifically TypeScript's implementation of a type system, the ability to model your code in a simple, concise way is a beautiful thing that's hard to do when you don't have any systems such as TypeScript or Flow enforcing it. So almost always a large JavaScript code base is going to have some wacky crap that no one understands and no one wants to touch. So that's the unfortunate thing. Second of all, this is just generally hard to do. There are all sorts of wacky other cases. So like you end up with these ridiculous 3000 file file or 3000 line files that used to be 300 file lines. My God, speaking is hard. You end up with these like 3000 line files where 2,700 of those lines are bizarre, terrible types that TypeStat generated. 
So eventually I would like to make this project good, but it's just such a hard unsolvable problem that it's going to be a very long time. And by then, who knows, maybe the sequel to TypeScript that destroys it has already come out. I don't know. So that's TypeStab. You ever seen the movie Spaceballs? I have seen Spaceballs. And, it, and did you hear the thing about a sequel where it was going to be called like Spaceballs 3, The Search for Spaceballs 2 or something like that? Yeah. I feel like <laughs> yeah. that's going to yeah, be TypeScript yeah. 2. Like, like TypeScript 2 is not really going to be a thing. There's just going to be something that's the equivalent of TypeScript 3 that's just going to like leapfrog. Just that was like just totally digression here. But oh, yeah, but that's what came into my mind. Oh, no, I think you're totally right. TypeScript is so good that even though it's like 10 years old in the public eye, it's still we haven't had a major successful competitor. So whatever comes next, it's going to be you know, it, the 10x principle. You have to do something 10 times better than the competition. Yeah. God only knows. Heavens only knows. Whatever. Who, who, what's what's coming next? But yeah. What, what my plan is, uh, eventually I will be happy with where TypeScript ESLint is. I will contribute to it, get the other people's contributions reviewed and everything. Um, I, I say this like I'm a leader. Uh, we will collectively get TypeScript ESLint to a really good place, and then I will be able to spend more time on TypeStat, which will make me very happy. Something that you demoed in your talk is TypeStat looking at some code and figuring out that there were two possible values for something, uh, two possible types based on the values. Like it, it, it determined that something could be a string or an integer. That's how I remember the example in your talk. Do I have that right? Or is that like, it can look, it can infer that, is correct. that, that something's yeah. a, a union type. Yeah. Is there anything in type mm -hmm. stats behavior today? Cause I haven't played with it that, would will it look at existing alias types and then use those if they already exist, or will it always create a new type for something? If it if it sees some complex union type, does it always just make a new union type, or will it go like, oh no, this already exists, I can use that thing? It'll it'll do both as as necessary. So there are two separate classes of mutators in it right now that are relevant to what you just brought up. One is the create a new type. If, if something is not currently represented by a type and should be, then we'll create a new one. That's what I previously mentioned. But what you're describing also is the second classification, which is uh, augmenting types, uh, which is actually split into two things. Types that don't have enough information. Let's say that it's a string or number, but should also be string or number or null. And then there are types that have too much information, things that are string or number or null, but are never actually string. So it should just be number or null. So it, if something already has a type, we're not going to mess with that too much, but we will take a look at that type and see, okay, is this thing either incomplete or too big? And then we'll trip down the type, which is actually a really impossible problem because sometimes people want to say type or undefined and other times the type should include undefined. And there's just no possible heuristic to know yeah. what people actually meant, especially since half the time mm. they don't even know. Yeah. So did you study CompSci? Unfortunately, I did. I, I really hate this. I hate how I, I'm trying to be this. I like, I want beacons of, of non-traditional backgrounds in the industry where I think it's really valuable to say, I don't have a CS degree. I came from whatever, bootcamp, self-taught, et cetera. And I've worked with so many excellent people, especially at Code Academy, which had such a focus on non-traditional tech backgrounds. But nope, four years CS degree, straight white male. That's me. Really annoying. Look, you say really annoying. You acknowledge like what's gone on in the industry, what's going on in the industry. <clears throat> like I don't think you you have to couch on, you know, this this you are who you are. It is what it is. I mean, I am too, right? Straight white male. I'm well aware of this. I talk sure. about this with friends all the time. It is what it is. The point is, you use that for good and not for bad. So, but but the reason I ask, sure, the reason I ask yeah. is you know because you get into a tool like this. 
there's some pretty heady topics around this. And I think there are a lot of theoretical things you can go and research in this space and you can keep yourself entertained or distracted or both for quite a while uh, with tools like this. And I'm impressed that you, you shipped. And so you've just sat down, you did a thing, you shipped and that's great. So I was curious if you had uh, some of that theory baked in already and you do. So that's good. To a degree. So I went to a school that did a very good job of teaching me. Fun fact, the same place, the same university, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, where my dad taught in the computer science department for many decades. He taught, he's actually a mathematician whose area just happens to be, he's, now he's retired and just doing math for fun. Sisyphus must be very happy. Uh, but his, his theory area was graph theory. So graph and number theory. And I only ever audited one of his courses. Uh, but the area of algorithms that was very focused on in our curriculum is not the area that I now use. I think it's really cool. I think graph theory, which is that area is fun and interesting. Um, but it's the, basically the only applications of graph theory that I use now are when I model curriculum, which is bizarre and weird that like a lot of people have, have started to talk about this more in industry, this thing that teachers have known for 200 years, that the way you, you, you develop a curriculum is you create a little circle, a little node it's called for every little topic. And then you draw lines on what topic requires other topics. And oh my God, that's graph theory. You do a depth first search or whatever to figure out, you know, what order you should teach things. But um, programming languages theory is what I actually work in now. And I learned none of that uh, in college with the exception of one course called programming languages where we learned Haskell um, Prolog, which is a logic-based language, and this extension to Java called Salsa that the professor wrote. Um, I did very well in the course, not because I understood any of the high-level theory stuff. I did not, but because I turned in the homework assignments a little early and did the extra credits and also raised my hand in class, none of which most people did. So that gave me a lot of extra credit. I got like 146 or something where the class median was like a C. And it's not because I did well. I bombed all the tests. So that's a commentary both on how little I actually know things like interning. Like I, I just looked up that issue I'd referenced earlier about how uh, literal types don't have their own type in TypeScript. I had to ask, like, what is this concept? I don't know any of these things. I don't know interning. I didn't know ASTs out of college. I just slowly picked this stuff up on the job. And then also it's a commentary on the American education system that it's like so bizarre. And I didn't actually have any JavaScript classes in college in my major. I had to go to a different department to get those. No, that was, yes, that's very much like my experience at UNC, right? I was in the School of Media and Journalism and comp sci students had to come over to the School of Media and Journalism <laughs> to get a, a practical class, a hands-on practical class. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I learned the heck out of C++, let me tell you. But JavaScript, no. ITWS, great RPI department. Highly recommend. All right. Well, we're long in the tooth here. I have said this a couple of times on a couple of different shows, long in the tooth. We've, we've been around <laughs> a few different topics and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversations. Is there anything else you want to, you want to close with? Well, first of all, again, thanks. This, I also enjoyed this conversation. This was fun. Um, I, I, I should promote myself here. Uh, I referenced that I'm a full-time open source person without a backing company. If you want to see more from me, please pay me in that. Please, sponsor my projects. It, I personally have a GitHub sponsors on my GitHub, Joshua K. Goldberg, alternately and or you could also sponsor TypeScript ES Lint. We are incredibly important for the TypeScript ecosystem. We are the reason why you can run both ES Lint and Prettier on TypeScript code. We are the tooling that both of them use. 
So fun fact, we have about the same amount of downloads within a few million as ESLint because Prettier depends on us. So please sponsor us so that we can have sustainable developments over the years and write Lint rules that make your code better for you, catch your bugs for you. Um, otherwise, buy my book, Learning TypeScript, like and subscribe, uh, free Ukraine. That's about it. Thanks for having me, Lee. No, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, that's it for everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. Bye. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Fish Shells. For show notes from this episode and more information about the show, visit leetrout.com. Music production by Haroon Serang. We'll see you next time. Yeah, yeah. So I don't sound totally full of shit. Got it. Yeah, that's that's the minimum bar there. You know, don't be a total full of shit. That there we go. Life lessons. Just a little bit. All right. All right. <clears throat>